Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Research VR podcast, the podcast about the science and design of virtual reality. I am your host, Osbal Abanyan, and with me today is special guest Ben Lang, the co-founder and executive editor of Road to VR. Hello, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. And of course, beaming in from Germany, we have Mr. Peter Lekoff. Hello, everyone. And uh, a weird story once again. I'm sitting right now on a Starbucks right after Augmented World Expo. So if you hear any baristas or coffee falling down, I'm sorry. It's just the ambient noise that I have to deal here. But at least I'm mobile. Yeah, you're really proving out our NVR podcasting model to see if this works. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Uh, all right, guys. So if you've listened to the podcast or if you've been in the VR industry, you've probably read one or two or many articles from Road to VR. And uh, Ben, you were one of the founders of this site, and you guys are probably one of the most informed kind of journalists in VR and AR space. Let's kind of begin with uh, how did you come around to being exposed to this industry? And then how did Road to VR, um, how was that founded and why? Sure. Uh, it's a great question, and it's a somewhat interesting story. So um, it's funny that you say, how are you exposed to the industry? Because uh, when I started, nobody would have ever said, nobody would have ever used the phrase VR industry. I mean, it was in this, it was in between this era where, you know, VR had uh, sprung up and shined bright in, you know, 80s and 90s, um, and really kind of died completely in the consumer space, although it hung out in a couple little niche areas. Uh, it was between there and and this rebirth of VR uh, that I started Road to VR. So it was 2011, which is uh, a year before Oculus went to Kickstarter, several years before they were bought by Facebook. Uh, I was doing technology journalism um, prior to that, writing about mostly mobile technology, uh, you know, writing for some other people as a contributor. Um, and I was kind of just ready to start something on my own. You know, I had a couple of years of experience under my belt. Um, I felt like I'd learned a lot about the things that I was writing about and came to realize that through years of writing about a topic, um, I had learned a, a, so much about it. Um, but, but that topic wasn't, you know, super exciting to me anymore. It was kind of a mature, you know, mature technology. Um, and so I was looking for something new, uh, to, to kind of, engage my my writer's interest if you will so i figured if i'm going to be potentially uh you know starting something on my own um i should pick a topic that is interesting to me because i'll end up learning a lot about it uh so at the time when i started road to vr it was not like hey here's a business idea it was um it was a passion project it was just a, a passion hobby really um, so it was 2011. I literally had a list of several different topics, you know, that I was interested mm. in writing about. And what else was uh, virtual, on it? <laughs> uh, there was uh, <laughs> a couple things. I remember uh, astronomy, uh, maybe astrophotography specifically. So I do a little bit of amateur astrophotography. Uh, I Whoa. thought I could learn a lot about that if I were to be writing about it. Um, there was, uh, I was potentially going to be um, thinking about doing kind of a more of a niche blog for users of a specific popular device back then, a tablet. Tablets were pretty new. Um, uh, virtual reality was on there and probably a couple others. Um, but virtual reality was on there just because uh, I was just interested in, in it conceptually. Um, you know, I would lay awake at night on some of those nights that you do where you think about random things and just think, you know, virtual reality, uh, as inspired by science fiction, you know, movies like The Matrix, you know, 
it's this idea that if you can have all of the external uh, stimuli created uh, internally, essentially, you know, that you could uh, recreate a world that seems real. And the idea that that might actually be physically possible to, to create a reality that is as perfect as, you know, something shown in the Matrix just fascinated me. Um, and I wanted to figure out, you know, is that possible, first of all? Um, and, and how far away are we from that if it is? Uh, so that's kind of the origin of the uh, not only the site, but the name Road to VR. It was me wanting to kind of map out uh, this roadmap toward a potential future uh, where it's a where humanity is able to build a, a perfect uh, perfect recreation of virtual reality, not like what we have today, which is incredibly crude compared to that, yet fascinating. Um, so it was 2011. Uh, I started just reading and writing. I knew nothing about VR aside from you know what I'd learned from from pop culture, really, uh, and the occasional you know whatever article here or there, things I picked up from you know what had happened in the kind of 90s. Uh, scene. Um, I just started reading and writing to to learn and uh, figure out where things were going. What indicated to you that VR was something that was kind of right around the corner? Because you you were saying Oculus hadn't even announced yet, or they hadn't been acquired. Like I I don't remember hearing about VR any and up until um, that initial Oculus Kickstarter video with like Gabe Newell and it had made its rounds on Reddit, but yeah, what, what even, why was VR even on the list of things that you could potentially focus on? Sure. So, um, yeah, I believe, I believe, uh, I started Road to VR before Oculus was formally formed as a company. Uh, and Whoa. it was about a year before the Kickstarter itself. Um, so I had no, no conception, neither did, I don't think anybody else, uh, you know, even the guys who ended up forming uh, Oculus. I don't know if they knew it was even going to, you know, VR would, would be where it is today uh, this huh. fast. Um, but it was on that list uh, for one because of that that just raw interest that's kind of always stuck with me. Um, and for two, uh, coming out of that mobile computing space, I started to, I had a sense that some of these technologies were coming together that might make uh, VR, you know, a possible uh, thing in the in the near future. So, in particular, I think that was a lot of the um, a lot of the stuff like a lot of the new uh, at the time natural uh, human computer interaction stuff. So, touchscreens uh, were over you know last couple of years shown to be very very natural, very intuitive for interacting with computers. Voice input. You had the Connect. You had the Wii in the, you know these these years prior, and I I started to see that uh, computers were starting to understand uh, kind of humans more as humans as opposed to us having to uh, adjust ourselves to help the computer understand us. And that that helped build upon this idea of, you know, where is VR today? Uh, where, did it, where did it go? You know, it used to be around and then no one's been talking about it really at all. Um, and then also at the time there was like, uh, there were some, uh, head mounted displays out there. There was a uh, one or two really kind of consumer, modern consumer headsets you could buy, but they were not what we'd call VR headset today. They didn't have head tracking. They were basically glorified video players. Um, but I, as I started to dig into this, I started to see that, uh, people were, uh, hacking these things together, stick a head tracker on top to see what that would look like. Um, and just, as I said, you know, kind of read, wrote learned and immersed myself in in the subject matter to figure out what was going on. Now here we are, uh, we just passed our seven-year anniversary recently. Um, I brought on my co-founder, uh, Paul James, 
who's been working with me for years now, um, Scott Hayden, one of my primary writers, um, and we're right along with the industry here, just growing and it's wonderful. Congratulations. And I hope you never feel at that point where you're like, ah, the road to VR has been reached. It's as saturated as mobile phones are. And we don't perhaps need to, uh, you know, <laughs> we don't need to keep trying to map out the roadmap. Um, I have a strange question. How often have, you know, business people approached you and said, Ooh, it's time to change the name to road to IR. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, I, I've definitely heard uh, jokes in that direction. Um, I have heard people say, you know, things like, hey, you know, the road's over, VR's here. And, you know, my answer to that uh, brings me back to kind of the core of what I'm doing, of why I'm doing what I'm doing, which is, you know, the thing that I was looking at from the very start before, you know, I knew I'd ever be using VR headsets in the near future was... Uh, was this this idea of a perfect virtual reality, and that was uh, that was really reinforced to me by the fact that um, I, I lucid dream on occasion, which for anybody who doesn't know is a dream where you kind of have a sense that you're dreaming and, and are able to control it in a certain way. Um, and it it just deeply fascinated me that our brains are able to um, self-stimulate to create a world that feels real that we can even consciously control to an extent. That for me was kind of the proof um, that a perfect VR, uh, a perfect virtual reality, or, or something near to it, should—it's not ridiculous. Like it should be possible. Uh, but I do think that that is probably won't happen in my lifetime. I don't think that we'll see perfect virtual reality in the next hundred years, and that means I have great job security because the road to VR uh, will be very long. I think longer than uh, than um, somebody looking at the technology today might expect based on where we are. Is that really the the you know the barrier that we're trying to pass through though? Like I, I think perhaps I did think along those lines as well until maybe a few years ago when I realized like the utility that you get from something that is not let's say a hundred percent realistic, uh, or the utility is not directly tied to its realism, right? Or 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 even your um, the full immersion aspect. Uh, are you a hundred percent immersed or not? Doesn't mean you can't get utility out of a, a podcasting app or out of a computer, you know, desktop app. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I th I feel like people maybe the name of virtual reality always gets people to really think about like immersion and presence and photorealism to be like the uh, like the the raison d'etre of, of, of the technology existing rather than thinking about the, the human computer interaction, just being more natural and, uh, and, and being able to understand the user's intent better than, than try to yeah. create you know, like a, a reality. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, VR doesn't need to be the perfect virtual reality in order for it to be useful. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. This is incredibly awesome. We're sitting in virtual reality. We're having a conversation. I'm, I've got my computer in front of me that I'm controlling. Uh, even if this wasn't uh, super immersive, and, and frankly, it's pretty immersive, I'm, you know, lo I'm looking at you guys and gesturing naturally and all this stuff. Even if this seems primitive, you know, 10 years from now, it's incredibly useful and it's, and it's a valuable technology, uh, immersion or not. Uh, this idea of the perfect virtual reality is, is, more of a, um, is more of a broad kind of philosophical thing, uh, which is an element of the passion. But of course, here we are in the nitty gritty actually using this technology and talking about it, reviewing it. Um, but that, that, that philosophical concept, it's just, it's, it kind of feels like, um, you know, aside from aside from colonizing the stars, if humanity is able to create 
a, uh, a technology that can that can offer realities that feel 100% real. I mean, what are your limits? At that point, it's literally, you know, your imagination, right? You could, if you could create that, uh, that it feels 100% real so that you couldn't actually tell it wasn't real, um, you can do anything. I mean, that's the nearest thing that I can imagine, you know, humanity would ever come to, to something like heaven, right? That's pretty spectacular, especially because the dreams, uh, the lucid dreaming and things like that, give us that little glimpse to think it might not be insane that that that's possible uh and that as you know i guess a a geek in this uh area just just will never not be interesting to me <laughs> yeah and and just just to think that road to vr might have been called road to the stars or road to <laughs> <laughs> you know like astrophotography yep. is what it could have been um so I guess we, we can transition more towards like recent uh, kind of understanding, you know, you, we've, we've been looking at the last four or five years of VR and, and it's honestly, it's crazy to think from when we started the podcast two and a half years ago to where we are now and, and how, ah, man, it, just the, the feelings and, and the momentum of the industry have really, I think, gone into like at least the first and second gear. Um, and I, I guess since we have you here, it's it's worth analyzing what is happening today and to be able to also like make predictions for the future. A lot of a lot of our audience and our listeners are developers in the field, um, you know, just academics and researchers that want to be investing their time and their and their skills. So it's I think really valuable to, for them to hear um, analysis. Um, so I guess one thing we haven't spoken too much about is Oculus Quest and kind of where where that fits in this world and then i see it as kind of like the pivotal shift between the high-end vr the desktop vr that i i don't think is going to go away similarly to like i think you can make a comparison between console consoles and pc gaming uh, where pc gaming seems like it's really not going to die and that even is a growing field but um there's the audience for console games gamers are very very different um what do you think is 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 the audience going to be that different for Oculus Quest? And how do you think the content will be also different for them as well compared to what is being built for, you know, Rift and Vive? Um, yeah, actually, let's just let's just start with Oculus Quest um, with your experience with it and what you think kind of will it make a big impact when it's launched or is it just going to have a long tail of, of sales and content that'll come out? Sure. Um, yeah, I think it will have a big impact. So uh, kind of a dirty little secret, or maybe not so secret, of VR is uh, a lot of uh, you know reports and um, projections and all these th all these things have been oftentimes referencing, or at least some of the uh, worst ones that I've seen. There are some good ones out there, but I've oftentimes been referencing uh, not only you know all the Gear VRs that are out there, um, but also you know cardboard headsets. Uh, and the truth is, people just really aren't using those devices very much um there were uh, you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of gear vr headsets given away as pre-order uh, bonuses for samsung phones you know a couple years ago um and that's why a lot of those devices are out there so although uh developers and and oftentimes people working in like 360 media and that kind of stuff uh are seeing that as like oh there's a big uh big base out there um I don't see a lot of people, you know, knowing this space, talking to people who use these products. I do not see a lot of people regularly using a headset uh, like that um, and coming back to it. You know, it's a, it's still a novelty. And a lot of that, I do think, is the fact that 
we don't have, uh, you know, there's not the, well, I mean, you know, the content library, of course, but that's enabled in many ways by these input capabilities that we have on the high-end headsets um, that make for really rich experiences. Uh, it's really cool that we have Go here, which is, you know, easier to use, um, more affordable because you don't need the specific phone. Uh, so it sounds like, Peter, you might chime in there. Uh, yes, uh, just uh, for the audience, uh, whenever I'm trying to say something, I turn on the mic and then the rumble comes in. Um, so, I mean, the Gear VR, I partly would agree with you, but when I actually uh, bought the Oculus Go, mostly for podcasting, I actually figured out, oh, I actually start to use it more often. Like, I ended up playing a lot of games and really have a lot of fun. And in a sense, the library and the richness, what you can do with Oculus Go, is based on the fact that, you know, Samsung was promoting so much the Gear VR. Everyone was expecting that, you know, there will be a market and developers created actually pretty great content. So, I mean, even when you go those days through the comments of most popular apps on the Oculus Go store, you still see that a lot of people are commenting from their uh, Gear VR. So, I, I think um, you have a good point that, um, you know, the Gear VR never caught a like a moment where you're like, yeah, I have a Gear VR, let's get a one too, and let's have fun, and like, yeah, and except maybe the really hardcore fans, no one was like totally bragging about having a Gear VR, and it was also a hustle to put a phone in, but in a sense it prepared what the Oculus Go is made of, right? Yeah, yeah, so that is a good point, and it's not to say that these aren't, you know, good devices in certain spaces, um, you know, they're not, they're not junk. They did pave an important path. Uh, so Go is great now, though, because it is a more usable device that is leveraging that existing library that was built up uh, and, and uh, by developers who were excited at what was coming. Um, but there is this divide in the content between those platforms, between Gear and Go um, and other uh, 3DOF headsets and uh, the high-end stuff, which typically... Your high end is mostly just qualified by whether or not it's sixed off. Um, the rendering power, yeah, yeah, two hands and sixed off on head and hands is what I meant to say. So the rendering power is in some ways, uh, you know, irrelevant. You can think about that like between smartphone and gaming, or I'm sorry, smartphones and PCs, both do gaming and both do gaming well. There's some great smartphone games that I've sunk, you know, hours into, but they do them very differently. Um, but it doesn't matter. Uh, because people figured out how to use you know each platform uh, correctly, uh, but we have examples like like we have a handful of examples of what are starting to be good or really great games in VR, which have taken several years to get to uh, that work on these sixed off um, uh, these sixed off head and hands high end headsets. Uh, so Quest finally brings that. And so that means that Quest will be able to do everything that you know whatever whatever is already good about Gear VR and go, whatever, nice use cases there are there that are working for people it'll be able to do that plus a lot of the more interactive immersive stuff that we get out of these high-end headsets and i do think that that will be uh, a shift um i do think that at especially at its price point um there's a lot of potential there you can imagine something like beat saber which i'm sure this you know you guys have heard this a lot or thought about this as well but beat saber is a game that uh the graphics don't really matter right uh, what matters is the way that it makes you move and the way that it makes you feel. And the only reason that it can make you move and feel like you do is because it can track your head and hands uh, in six degrees of freedom. Uh, if that can be brought to something like Quest, um, I, and I've been, I've been saying this for years, uh, if that can be brought to something like Quest, which is $400, if somebody plays it and they have fun and everybody, literally everybody I've put into Beat Saber has come out and said, that was really cool. If somebody gets into a headset 
a quest, plays Beat Saber, takes it off. It's the first time they ever played VR and says, that was really fun. How much, how much does that cost for me to do that? The answer used to be like $1,500 if they didn't already have a gaming PC, which is not most people. The answer after Quest launches, assuming Beat Saber ends up on it, will be $400, maybe maybe less in the near future. And that's, that is a price point where people start to say, huh, $400. That was fun. You know, I'm going to have to think about that. You know, it's, maybe it's not an instant purchase, right? For some people, maybe. Um but maybe it's not an instant purchase, but it's not like, oh, $1,500. Yeah, okay, whatever. Like, like it's not that throwaway number. So uh, to go back to, to, uh, to, to take this way back, I think that there is a good chance that Go ends up being influential because it brings the best parts, uh, the key parts of high-end VR to a uh, more portable, more usable, and more affordable package. And that's what VR really needs. I mean, Talking about consoles, Nintendo has been you know the best one to show that you don't need to be the most powerful console on the block. You have to have great content that people love uh, in order to you know sell products and have loyal fans. Uh, so uh, yes, I think uh, I think Quest could be a big deal. Uh, it's not gonna it's not gonna blow the doors open. Uh, we still need uh, a couple killer apps. Um, but it could really drive uh, interest and engagement and and sales and continue to make this ecosystem really happen. Uh, as long as that ecosystem keeps getting built, VR is going to you know come one way or another. Yeah, I think another huge element is is exactly that the audience that each device is trying to attract. Like I think the audience that Magic Leap is trying to attract compared to Quest is like completely different, right? Even though we're we can consider them part of the same spectrum or in the same industry, um, but it's it's such a different strategy to who you want to be attracting and and even just within a year, right? We that price point of playing Beat Saber is going to go from fifteen hundred dollars down to four hundred dollars, um, and it's you can and, and there's enough games that are that you, that are called console sellers that people are see the game, see gifts of the game, and they're like, I want to play that game, and they drop you know three hundred or four hundred dollars on buying a bundled version. Uh, I think that could happen with Go, but I guess the one thing that I guess I haven't been t- in agreement in agreement with like the rest of people that I've seen in the industry is people are like the qu- the quest will come out and it will sell four million headsets or two million headsets like I I so I don't think that the quest will not sell well over time but I don't see the the launch of it really being like a pivotal moment especially in the gaming side because gamers even though like these headsets, especially the lower end headsets are being marketed towards gamers, gamers are still not convinced that VR is very much a part of gaming's future. Um, we're starting to see, see little shifts of that. And you'll, and you can track this by seeing how many VR, um, VR gifts are trending on like our gaming. And, and it's always in the comments you'll notice is people being like, wait, this is what VR is like. And it's, typically prompted because of the uh, the rich social interactions that people are having whether you're like pulling someone's uh clip out of their gun or like they're playing russian roulette and they like do a dab before they kill themselves like there's just like these interactions that you can't have in yeah. typical video games that i think are going to be the selling points and 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 so that's the reason why i think quest will do well over time when people keep seeing content about quest keep coming up rather than the initial launch of it do, do you think that's like an, an accurate analysis or yeah i do and i think i think anybody who's been in this industry for uh you know several years now understands uh you know is more realistic about the expectations 
um, the industry was definitely caught up in a, you know, really exciting, you know, this is going to be uh, an immediate brand new industry. It's going to change the world and all that will come in time. Um, but the timeline that a lot of people were suggesting was incredibly aggressive. Um, yes, it will come, but there's, it's people, people were really uh, prone to start comparing VR to, to the iPhone, right? Because the iPhone is an example of a technology, which very quickly integrated itself into our lives and, and really changed the way that people interact in, with people in the world. So people said, okay, VR is even you know more powerful than an iPhone. So of course it's got to just take off. But the fact of the matter is the iPhone uh, didn't come out of a vacuum, right? There were you know, decades of devices that led up to it. And before the iPhone, which, you know, uh, you can call the, mo the modern smartphone, there were years of smartphones before that that were figuring out how to do it all, figuring out what kind of applications you'd want on a phone. Years and years and years before we had that one product uh, that, that had a broad appeal. Um, and I think VR is, I think rather than, you know, looking at the iPhone, which is very nearsighted, you have to respect those those decades and then and then years building up to that device where there was so much learning, so much development that had to come first before everything could get packaged together. Uh, and so we're seeing that now. You know, I don't think that we we started in the iPhone era like some people would say. You know, we started back in that kind of uh, really early smartphone days uh, where all the interfaces on smartphones were different, all the applications were different. Uh, we we're still using weird inputs and all this stuff uh, that were ultimately not what we we're going to use in the end. Um, and yeah, we're there. We're figuring out what kind of applications work well in VR, right? As we're sitting here recording a podcast in VR, how does the input work? As we're talking about, you know, which devices are, which devices and which input are are critical, uh, and what and what kind of things are useful as we have our screens here in front of us, you know, to potentially be using as we talk. So we've we've figured this out over the last couple of years. Applications like big screen have been built over the last couple of years just figuring out how to make the interface feel good. Like it just takes time. It's just not going to be an overnight thing. The quest will be in the same quest and, and AR for that matter uh, are going to be in the same boat. And it, so, yeah, fundamentally, I, I agree. I don't think that this is, I don't think that quest is uh, likely to quickly sell, you know, sell multiple millions in year one. I absolutely don't. Um, that will come when you have one product that is really easy to do, really easy to use and does a ton of useful stuff for people you know gaming is one thing right um you still need more you still need more useful uh applications that are easy to use to have that product that just everyone says oh my god i want that i want that i need right. that because people don't just buy sorry peter but people people don't just buy ps4s and xbox ones for gaming right like they buy it as a netflix machine as a youtube machine as uh, there's other byproducts that come from these devices that are sold as a gaming device and i think vr has the benefit of that as well but except you could actually have the netflix tv on your wall you know lying down and i mean uh, and friends and i don't know there's 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 a lot of really interesting uh, opportunities that come as well well, um, I'm kind of in between both of you, so in a sense, what Azad said in um, um, the beginning of uh, this topic, you know, the quest will not sell immediately well, but later on, I can imagine this happening because I guess everyone who is really enthusiastic about VR already has either an Oculus Rift or, you know, maybe they saved some money and got a mixed reality headset, you know, you need less GPU power, so maybe a 1050 Ti laptop would be fine enough, so, I mean... It, but it, young it, young people don't. Young people young don't. people don't have enough that's, money for it. That's true, but again, I think there is one fundamental factor that could change 
this reality and that is marketing spent on selling the quest. I think if Oculus uh, actually when they release the quest will do a huge campaign, like re not the ones that they did with you know, the, the Oculus TV one where they did like a little bit of YouTube advertising, but the, where they really will you know game up their advertisement and really really go for it. I think they can very well sell a lot of those devices, particularly because I mean a lot of people are doing more and more pornography for example I meet a lot of startups and particularly the older um, industrial um, <clears throat> uh, people who I meet uh, on different uh, events are always kind of asking about you know but can you actually watch porn with it and I mean it's not something I'm super interested myself in because I don't think porn in the arm makes too much sense um, in a sense that I don't understand why people enjoy it more and you know just watching it on the screen but, you know, people ask for it and they have a demand. And if Oculus will spend really a lot of money on advertisement, like if they could build up a hype like Magic Leap, I think it could, you know, I, I think it could actually, you know, do some really well numbers. I'm not sure if they're going to do it. but Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a perfectly uh, good point. Um, Facebook, Facebook could pay a lot to get these devices sold, right? So, yes, that's, that's the wild card variable. Um, if they're going to go all out and, and try to try to get these out there, I mean, look at PSVR. Expensive device, uh, clunky compared to what uh, Quest will be like. Uh, and they sold a million, I think, in less than a year. Uh, you know, they have the install base, uh, you know, of, you know, at the time, I think it was something like 50 million uh, PS4s uh, and, those, and that built-in, you know, pretty cohesive, loyal fan base to advertise to. So they had that marketing advantage. So yeah, we could we could see a million plus. Um, but but to, to Oz's point, um, it's not going to be the it's not going to be the probably the breakout product unless we end up with a you know a killer app that that really justifies the price point. Um, but yeah. back to that point of of the device doing multiple useful things beyond just um, beyond just gaming. Uh, you know, again, looking to the smartphone. If you want to compare it to an, uh, to a smartphone, the smartphone didn't just do calls it was web browsing it was maps it was games um especially all, maps, right i mean if you just look at the number of, of of gadgets and gizmos that our smartphones replaced i mean uh, a voice recorder a camera uh freaking tape measure um <laughs> you can you can just keep rattling those off the things that we don't buy anymore because it's in this one device that is value like packed into that little box uh, VR will sell to tons of people when it starts replacing those devices, right? Uh, or if there's some killer app that's going to appeal to a specific audience like gamers. Sorry to interrupt you, but how could it? Um, and I'm asking a question because I can totally easily, without even you know drinking a coffee and being fit, imagine how an augmented reality device that is like you know in 20 years will come out that could totally replace a lot of values that a smartphone does. I totally can understand how a VR headset can give a certain benefit for certain industrial cases or medical cases but how could actually and i'm really curious um, about what to think about how could a vr headset improve the everyday life of an average consumer where do you see actually stuff that they could actually really do productively or you know interestingly with it sure um so just one off the top of my head that i think is interesting is exercise right um, you know, you yeah. can go and you can play Beat Saber for an hour a night and that's not a bad workout at all. Um, for people who don't already own or, or don't have room for, you know, an exercise bike or something like that. I mean, honestly, there's a future, I think, where there are applications, especially once Quest is here, where you can track head and hands. 
uh, where there are applications uh, that can be tailored specifically toward exercise and could potentially replace some exercise equipment, uh, if yeah. nothing else. Um, and then there's uh, there's the things like um, uh, 3D modeling, and, and this does go a little bit more into the enterprise end, you're right, rather than just the uh, uh, pure in-home consumer. Um, so uh, to your point, though, that, that AR might be kind of a better fit for replacing certain things, I agree. Uh, but only to the extent that um, AR and VR are separate, which I mean, they don't need. There's no reason they need to be. So yeah, we yeah, can bring right. in. You know, you can do some pass through. Pass through uh, AR is totally viable on on VR headsets today, and will become increasingly more so. But actually, I agree. If we're just if we're just going to separate AR and VR, I think AR probably has the potential uh, to uh, replace to be more of the useful device, where VR would be more of the um, more of the entertainment device for the for the end consumer, but ultimately, I think it's going to be a bit of Maybe, a mishmash yeah. uh, of those things. Yeah, I um, I, I think a, a, so. AR is something we'll I think we'll we should dive into in just a little bit. Um, because I want to ask about uh, PC VR and and about generation two of PC VR. This is something that like I've been we're, we're, I, since the CV one launch. We know we're already thinking about what is when are the tra- headsets that are going to come out with eye tracking with wider field of view, high resolution. And we're starting to see, um, you know, the, let's say the Android versions of this, like the Pimax 8k or 5k display. Um, I got to try out the star VR one with the extremely wide field of view, which I thought was very impressive. Um, I would call the star VR one, probably the first of the second generation VR PC VR headsets. Do you think, um, first of all, do you think Oculus is going to make a Rift 2 based on the Half Dome prototype, which I think is still an open question, whether it makes sense for them to keep investing in PC? Um, And second, when do you think a second generation of PC, high-end PC VR headsets will come out? And what do you think are the... um, the uh, the criteria for a second generation headset is it is it, does it need to have eye tracking high res uh, <laughs> I'm doing fingers and counting <laughs> on my fingers uh, yeah eye tracking higher resolution and wider field of view and are there other like sensors or things that yeah it would be included that we're missing yeah I think it's easy uh, to kind of get tied up in the specs when thinking about second generation and also thinking that it's always clear cut which I, I just don't think it is so. There are some headsets out there that have aspects of them that you would say this feels second generation. Um, but as far as kind of listing off the specs, I don't think of what makes something a second generation PC VR headset. I don't think you can do that until they're out there. Then you can look back and say, oh, it turns out these specs are, are what we feel like is a second generation headset. I think the only way that you can uh, really answer that question is to look at the experience that it provides. And is it fundamentally different uh, than what came before? Um, so Pimax, for instance, uh, yeah, it's got a real wide field of view, um, but does it, you know, does it make other sacrifices that that diminish the overall experience? Uh, and, and that's just an example. I, I don't know. Um, Star VR One, for instance, uh, same thing. Wide field of view. They've got eye tracking in there, but does that all work together in a in a cohesive way that that really makes it? Uh, a different experience than using what came before um price factors in there as well uh so looking back again and unfortunately the smartphone is just such a great place to draw analogies to um moving from the iphone that didn't have gps to the iphone that had gps 
is a fundamental difference in experience. It could do things that were new and useful that the other one couldn't do. And again, you uh, at the time the GPS was added to smartphones, it's like, great, now we'll be able to have our little Garmins on our phone. Nobody understood at the time what GPS in a phone and precision uh, location would mean for enab- enabling all of these uh, geo-specific applications. Um, it it Nobody knew it. So we couldn't just look at the specs and say, okay, second-gen smartphone is going to have GPS in it, right? Um, it We could look back and see that now. But that's to the point. Um, I think you want to look for what is the experience that the specs are actually offering the user, and does it let them do different things, or does it uh, really mark a shift in what their experience right. is like. So you're saying it's retroactively only can you implied. Um, but yeah, go for it. One thing with the GPS though, um, I mean, most phones in most of the cases do not really so much rely on this GPS that we are used so much in the garments and all the navigation, but actually on a GPS. So actually the triangulation of the cell towers. So it's kind of a hack. So in, in, in a sense, um, a lot of things that we are used to with smartphones, like, you know, beautiful photos, they're a hack. It's all computational photography where, you know, crazy stuff is faking a lot of uh, stuff that we are used to see uh, out of good cameras. And with GPS and phones, I think, um, I'm, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Why does that matter, though? I think it like, matters. It doesn't matter how it's done. I think it uh, matters through the fact that, for example, when we think about location-based um, services like it's still to this day super hard to actually do something um, where certain applications or certain things will trigger in a certain space on the phone because the phone knows its precision outside of buildings well but for example in buildings it's hard but suddenly something like iRKit came along and suddenly you can navigate very well indoor and the phone can understand its place very well indoor but it has nothing to do with GPS so I think the problem yeah, yeah, is not that you need to look at the specs the problem is that um, we need to figure out the use cases and then we can hack around whatever technology we have and make it somehow happen so the specs alone mm-hmm. don't bring much I think in a sense right so yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna push back on this I think just I, I, I got your point in terms of like it's hard to um, make a criteria and be like if it reaches the, this criteria then automatically it's in a second generation and it's like a pivotal moment in, in that line of things and but however you know smartphones are very iterative and tech technically we still consider them different generations every time there's you know we went from iPhone uh, iPhone 3 to 4 to uh, to 5 whatever um, but I think eye tracking Get is enough of a shift on the on fundamentally both um, on how you use the device and how the device kind of you know fits around you both mm-hmm. uh, in comfort and you know automatic IPD adjustment which Star VR had with social uh, in- environments with even interacting with uh, you know game worlds or you know you're, you're probably going to see a lot of games that you will aim with your eyes um, which you can imagine how esports will change which suddenly like that the uh we'll get to even faster movement and and like what is it dps not dps that's damage per second it's like how many there's a there's a metric for how fast you can type in like league of legends or something dpi i guess but um but when you have that with your eyes you can imagine suddenly the the esports players are training their reaction times uh, their fastest reaction time which is like eyes um i think i think eye tracking really will will 
market yeah. pretty big shift. Yeah, but that's no, not I, coming on mobile just yet, right? Like that's that's for, for yeah. mobile. It's like at least four four years away, and probably two why? years for PC. Uh, why is it uh, harder um, for mobile? Because the chip itself doesn't use that much uh, currency, and if you can put it in a desktop headset. It's uh, also very easy to integrate in a mobile headset where you have even less calculational powers that you really need. So foveated rendering makes yeah. even more sense for mobile, doesn't it? Uh, agreed. But I mean, I would think that too, but none of these new all-in-one headsets are, yeah. have included it. So clearly there's a reason there. Yeah, I, it's, I think it's an element of uh, the processing power required and the bandwidth. So you have to have cameras looking at the eyes and you need to process those images rapidly and quickly. Um to understand what the eyes are doing. And that's all that's all uh, computer vision stuff, which is pretty heavy processing-wise. So I think it's a matter of power consumption and processing power over cost uh, or size. Um, but, you know, in the future, we could see a dedicated chips uh, built into some of these mobile platforms that all they do is those calculations, uh, which could make that feasible. Whereas right. today, trying to run those images into, you know, the GPU and the CPU uh, of the system would be prohibitively uh, expensive uh, from a processor standpoint. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the point is like, it's still a lot of VR things are still hacks on top of already existing hardware. And until we have dedicated hardware for uh, whether it's, you know, running at, at constant 90 or 120 FPS or running or uh, doing eye tracking and uh, or even slam, right? Like slam being having its own dedicated um, processing mm. unit um, does change things. Yeah. Um, yeah do you, so just to, just to reiterate, like, do you think there will be a Rift 2? And, and if so, when do you think that would be a thing? Sure. Uh, I, I do think that there will be a Rift 2. Um, I think that uh, maybe if Facebook had kind of formed their own internal uh, VR division from the start and started making products like, like Go and maybe had done a Rift initially, uh, that, that maybe they would say, all right, uh, PC VR is kind of too expensive and we're not going to do it. But I think the fact that they had a kind of acquired Oculus as this this core, which you know arguably has has been um, assimilated into into the Facebook at this point, um, <laughs> I think that there's still that core of uh, of people in Facebook who are in important enough positions and are excited enough about what you know PC VR can do that other platforms can't today. That that Rift two is kind of an inevitability. There would have to be something drastic that happens to kill that from happening. I mean, I think if you just look at, uh, you know, Michael Brash, uh, Oculus's chief scientist, gives uh, a basically a year, generally a yearly uh, kind of presentation at their at their conference. Um, he looks at kind of the state of the research and uh, the near future of where he thinks the technology is going, and there's just a certain enthusiasm and passion um, there. Uh, that I think, you know, he's probably he's probably um, on occasion showing this stuff to, to Zuckerberg, who is make is you know one of the uh, you know top stakeholders for Facebook and is really driving these decisions. Um, I think that someone like Michael Brash can convince someone like uh, uh, Zuckerberg that continuing to do Rift is important. Um, to that end, where uh, when um, Oculus has said in the past uh, nothing before either 2019 or 2020, um, and I imagine that I imagine that that's still where it'll fall, um, which was which was really interesting because at the time uh, when they had said that, I think that was either at or uh, at or around the time of the CV1 launch, which was kind of early 2016. 
for them to come out and say we're not planning another headset until 2019 or 2020 felt so far away right but it's looking like that was a pretty good decision uh from the start the rift appears to still be going strong they've been focusing on just making content uh on the pc side that works well for it um and you know some of uh some of the best vr games that we've seen to date have come in have uh, come directly as a result of of them funding that content and having a platform saying you just need to build it for this one and try to make it great um you know i'm not uh, a big fan of the ex- exclusives and the politics but it's actually very challenging to make uh today a vr game that works great on five controllers and right. uh touch controllers because they're actually very different um it'd be like would be like trying to make a game that works well on the Wii Mote and on an Xbox controller. I mean, just to get the button setups correct would just be a big challenge. So being able to optimize yeah. for, for one platform instead of having them introduce a Rift 2 two years later that does all this different stuff, it kind of seems like that was the right choice, even though it, it felt so far away when they said it at the time. Um, do you think that the reason why they potentially assume that they need four years is that Let's say with the phones, again, the phone analogy, uh, to iterate phones is kind of not that hard because you usually have like two to three years before you do a major design. So why are you improving a little bit the design of a phone like you have usually with iPhones or the Samsung phones? They kind of look similarly for two or three years. It just, you know, bump up the specs, do features, and in the meantime, doing a completely redesign. And Oculus was like, yeah, we cannot like, you know, do 10% more pixels next year. Doesn't make sense. Why should we do it? We just wait till we have a completely new redesign. So there is not a possibility right now for such a pace as with smartphones. Is it something that you would agree with or? Yeah, there's no Um, competition. I mean, there's no no rush even. Yeah. 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 So um, I think in the in the modern smartphone era, the post iPhone era, that's when we got used to a one year refresh on the device that you know, we all now have in our pockets because it's important. We, we want that pace because it's so useful to our lives. Um, before the uh, before that modern smartphone area, if you go back to kind of the, the pre-smartphone smartphones, your your Blackberries, your Palms, your Trios, um, I'd, I'd honestly have to go back and double check, but they were I, I don't believe that they were nearly as aggressive on this. Okay, here's the next year's model. Here's the next year's model. Um, right. It just wasn't, it just wasn't that, it, there wasn't that need at the time. There wasn't, it wasn't so useful that we, it had to be faster next year because the applications are growing at such a rate. Um, I think, I think that VR headsets are still in that phase where until there are enough new things to, to completely change the experience, um, I think it's a reasonable decision to say, let's, let's wait and not go through the complexity of, uh, of making, you know, a brand new product essentially uh to that point you know i'm i'm wearing a vive pro right now the resolution's better which is awesome um but is it a, could i not be doing this in a in a in a vive uh original launched uh two years ago no there's no reason i couldn't do that uh so you know for a company like facebook and oculus who are playing a long game where they want to own the software totally different decision than a company like htc who you know they're making money off the hardware so they they want that pace oculus and facebook don't necessarily need that pace they're both valid for the situation that these companies are in right and a lot i think final question on vr before we kind of transition into ar stuff um uh it seems like valve being in the position that they are on on the computer they they knew steam vr was going to be the clear 
like at least that's the sales were gonna a lot of a lot of VR sales were gonna go through Steam, even with the Rift supporting like Open VR and, and like I'm I use a lot of most of the time I'm using Steam VR with my Rift. Um, but does it make sense for them? Or they haven't said anything, but like, do, are they thinking about mobile VR at all, or do they even care? Or is that too hard of a um, new market for them to go into? And especially because Oculus realized you're, they're not going to make money off of home, like significant yeah. amount of money for Facebook, right? So they're like, we need to own. They've always wanted to own an entire platform. They missed the the, the shift to mobile hardware. They tried to do a Facebook phone once, didn't really work. And uh, they've always been an app. Uh, now they want to own either AR or VR, and it makes sense for them to have a close uh, mobile ecosystem. But does Valve, is Valve just chilling on their throne, you know, on PC, and they're like, we're just always going to target PC VR, high-end mm-hmm. VR, and not need to worry about um, all-in-one? That's a really good question um, that I don't hear asked a lot. Um, so I think that Valve is, Valve is unique. Uh, because of the situation they're in, which they are a massive company, uh, massively influential in the gaming space, but they're privately held. Um, so oh, their yeah. decisions are very different uh, than you might see from a you know, public company. Um, I think, and I'm just guessing, I don't have any good indicators on this, uh, kind of from inside Valve right now. Um, but my feeling would be that kind of the guys in there working on this stuff are, are they're, they're real users and also kind of geeky techie nerds like you know probably the rest of us right now. I think that they probably see the difference in experience between what mobile VR has been able to do to date compared to, uh, you know, the vastly different, uh, in many ways, better experience that the high-end stuff does. And I think that they're probably spending a lot of their time working on that high-end stuff because it's what they're most interested in. Um, yes, uh, Facebook can make the case for mobile will sell, you know, a lot more. So let's start selling the go and let's get that out there, even if it doesn't necessarily excite and energize the people who are literally in the in the room working on it. Um, I think Valve is unique in that uh, the people who are working there and the way their company is structured can say, this is what interests me the most. I want to build for this. Um, and it's, uh, it's where we think we can do kind of the best work. Uh, you know, I, I could see them saying, you know, mobile is just not our not our specialty at all. They've been a PC uh, even long before working on PC VR. They've been a PC software company uh, and game developer with PC tools for their entire history. So yeah, right. I think it would be kind of uh, I think it would be a big shift and challenge for them. Uh, it would require probably lots of new hiring uh, and new you know uh, kind of a shift in their company to to go after mm. mobile hardware and mobile ecosystem. So I don't think that they're focusing on that. Um, but the the big question is, you know, once once Quest is out there and it's starting to really match the capabilities of, uh, you know, input capabilities and, and the kinds of games that can be played, uh, it really might start to, to interest them. Um, so I don't know if they'll just mm-hmm. be out forever. But right now, I have no indication that they are really thinking much about mobile at all. Right. And if they were to, I can imagine them doing something like a Steam box where it's still fundamentally like access to the same games and library and, and even the OS, but it's maybe we have to wait a few years for like the 855 or the 865 to come around, match exactly the same specs as a low-end PC VR, um, and then have access to the same app store. Maybe that would make sense. But to them, yeah, it's it's they they still know what they're making money off of which is steam um mm-hmm. they don't need to fragment that at all yeah um cool okay let's let's start talking about augmented reality and it this doesn't um 
I want to include within that like pass through stereo AR, which I'm I th I think a lot of people aren't thinking about the impact that that can have or even the the quality of experience. But um, I guess let's yeah let's let's just give you the stage to talk about magically. Like what what do you think? Uh, how do, how would you analyze this the situation with the Magic Leap One where it fits into uh, the continuum? How develop how the developers that you've been talking to have been responding to it, and um, is the what market do you think really makes sense for Magic Leap? Sure. Um, so I was just down at LeapCon uh, the other week and got to kind of see what the company, how the company is presenting themselves. Um, so to uh, let me back up just first, just to kind of address the device and all that stuff. Um, so although although they definitely uh, kind of built their own hype bubble, uh, which was burst for a lot of people, still fundamentally a good device. Um, there are moments where using it does feel a little bit like magic when the content's all designed just right. Uh, to avoid, you know, the limitations that come with a device like that, uh, it can be really cool to be like that thing looks like it's on my table. It looks like it's right there, right? That's that's the the magic part. The leap part is the other question. <laughs> um, the leap's not there. Um, the company is still, uh, I think, really promising things that they're not quite ready to deliver, just in terms of you know how transformative they want to be and all that. But that's fine if they're looking to the long-term future. Uh, but they need I think that they need to be a little bit more responsible in conveying this to developers and users, being like, hey, um, you know, this is, you know, 10 years out, you might have this awesome device that you're going to wear all day and is uh, and can do this stuff just all the time that you don't, doesn't bother you to wear it and is affordable. Uh, but that's not that's not this year and that's not next year. You know, Magic Leap, um, they're kind of presenting themselves as a consumer company just the way that they are talking and and uh, leapcon very shiny graphics very uh pretty presentation but they're still selling uh what is it's a developer kit it is a development kit they're calling it they occasionally say creators edition um but they i don't think they've ever called it a development kit but that's what it is and i think i think that they there's no reason they shouldn't be honest about that it costs twenty four hundred dollars um, it's not a consumer device, but they're just treading this weird line where it's like, they won't say that, right? They won't say that it's not a consumer device, even though anybody who's actually paying attention knows that it's a dev kit. Um, so that's kind of weird. Um, but they're, <laughs> they seem to be needing to run on this hype that they've built. And, you know, I get that they've raised a ton of money. They have to sell a vision, uh, in order to be successful. If they just stopped and said, here's our dev kit. 10 years later, you'll have the thing we've kind of been promising this whole time. Uh, that's going to kill their their momentum. And they're still a startup. They're massively funded, but they're still a startup. Their, uh, their continued existence is not guaranteed. Um, so uh, back to your question um, about kind of where, where Magically Fits as a device. It's also kind of weird because they're really pushing it as kind of this entertainment machine, which... Uh, Entertainment and somewhat productivity machine, which it has to be for now because it's it is a it's a device that you can wear kind of comfortably for sessions, but it's still not a device that you are going to wear all day or even outside the house really, which is where AR ultimately needs to end up because AR's usefulness is being there always. It's not about put get you know walking over and pulling the thing out of the box and putting it on your head and booting it up and starting into a thing. That is massive friction that will never justify. Lots of AR's most useful use cases. 
And one that I think about all the time is uh, my grocery list. So like right now I have a grocery list that's on my phone. And when I go to the store, I walk down the aisle, I get out my list, say, okay, what am I looking for? Tomatoes. All right, put it away. I go and I walk down, I grab the tomatoes, I get it out, I check it off. I look at the next thing. It's a bit of a clunky thing, but it's a useful tool. Um, But when the time comes that I have these glasses that are comfortable to wear all the time, that nobody thinks look goofy enough so I can wear them in the grocery store, and my list is just floating right there uh, that I can glance at, walk down, get the next thing, it pops up, I just touch it to check off that thing. When that, that's the kind of use case that is like what I'd call like stupid simple. Like it's almost like you don't even think, why would you, you'd never buy obviously a $2,400 product for that, but it's those little uh, productivity use cases in your day to day that will be super useful that our smartphones work for today, but only because they're always in our pocket and they're always on and they boot up in a millisecond. uh, The second you hit the button, Um, AR has this huge potential to radically uh, integrate itself into our, into our day to day. Um, but we're really far away from that today with, with Magic Leap. It's, it's going to be years and years and years until we have that always worn uh, device. Um, but there's, so to back up a little bit, um, those AR use cases, I, uh, VR is still really, uh, for a long time, probably going to be the thing you want for entertainment. Uh, it's just a matter of physics and the way that the optics work and the way that uh, AR displays work today. Uh, mean that it's just a subpar visual experience uh, to be using AR for times when you want to be fully uh, immersed and entertained. Uh, so even at that point, I think pass-through VR is probably going to be kind of the superior experience. If you're doing an in-home session-based thing, you're going to want the thing that looks the best because you have to put on the headset anyway. You're not taking it everywhere. Uh, AR AR really finds those uh, finds its usability in the always worn, not necessarily pure entertainment, but kind of uh, augmenting life type scenarios. And we're still pretty far from that. Yeah, I, I, I do want to put the point out there that I think the AR features of VR headsets will ha- will be essential to future headsets because us being so blind in our rooms, not knowing where our TVs and monitors are and, you know, crashing our con- controllers, these are huge usability problems, right? That These aren't features of the headset. So us scanning the room, uh, knowing where you are, knowing where people are and like having that pass through is absolutely going to be uh, is a usability thing that will have to be integrated. So yeah, you're, 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 I, I think I agree with your analysis at that point, I guess maybe coming back to the, the question of audience for AR and what, so VR is able to survive up until now because you have enough, um, uh, incentives both on the enterprise side where it's made certain things cheaper and, and faster iterations. And also there's enough PC uh, gamers out there that had enough money to have good GPUs and, and play these games, right? Even though it's a very small market and, uh, and some would say it's like very subsidized market, but it was enough to keep this momentum going so that we can get to generation two and three. AR um, is kind of harder to think of what that right audience is. And perhaps HoloLens... D- at least from my perspective, has been, did it right with really targeting enterprise, even though the field of view and experience of it isn't amazing, but you could do your enterprisey things quite yeah. well. Magic Leap, as you said, is much more trying to gear towards consumers. 
where it's 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 hard for me to like even imagine that working for the next five years let alone like i've even heard from some enterprise um clients complaining that the because of the constriction of the field of view or the sorry the uh the peripheral vision right is constricted because of the frame of the glasses to enable better user experience so that you don't mm. notice the field of view limitations yeah. that caught that's a uh, significant safety hazard when it comes to like um, you know, factories and where, where basically all these um, augmented world expo, you know, the companies are uh, the, all these AR uh, companies. And so it's hard to even see, maybe they're trying to, trying to do both, but like not doing each one well enough that both yeah. feel like they're not being targeted enough. I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely a question of strategy and it's, I hope they're they're thinking it through because there's very mm -hmm. few of us out there, right? These people that are into these cinematic or, or game kind of weird experiences that are, want to put up with it. Um, yeah, um, Peter or yeah, Ben. Yeah, uh, I there's definitely a threat of trying to target um, trying to target both use cases and not doing one well enough. Uh, and to your point about the the field of view uh, being kind of a prime example of that. That could be an issue. Um, I think that, like you said, Microsoft was smart to target enterprise because the experience isn't blow you know blow your socks off like so immersive, so amazing. But as a tool, it doesn't need to be that way. It just needs to be useful. It just needs to provide value. And clearly, uh, uh, Hololens seems to be delivering that. Um, where it ultimately ends up is kind of the the broader question. Um, it's great. It's great to have Magic Leap as a as a device out there. It's nice to have an option. It's great to have competition. Um, I really hope that they manage to deliver the kind of amazing uh, future that they're envisioning. Um, it would be a shame if you know they've raised all this money and if all that work were to you know die at some point. That would be that would be a terrible loss for for the industry, uh, regardless of what you think about the device or the company. Um, I think that I think that AR is a natural kind of future for uh, for smartphones. Honestly, you know, I think in the long run it, it will uh, replace uh, replace the smartphone. The smartphone will probably become uh, slowly turn into the uh, compute unit that's in our pocket, as opposed to the thing that we're actually interacting with. It'll just be the battery, the, the uh, processor, the critical infra, uh, the critical you know processing information. Uh, that's supporting a headset that we're wearing. Uh, that at a at a at a minimum, you know, you should just be able to hold your palm up flat and see see a smartphone screen, right? That's the most basic uh, kind of vision of of AR taking over our smartphones. But at a at a maximum, blowing that whole smartphone screen up to your world basically is kind of that kind of that vision. And again, uh, the needing to move toward the always worn or or um, uh, able to be worn outside in public for multiple hours at a time kind of device it will take until then until uh ar starts really getting getting good in the consumer realm in the enterprise realm it can you know survive on a lot less um but i don't think it's gonna really explode until we can get to that to that useful consumer space yeah i i, I guess that makes sense if ar is very much a part of is an extension of your phone similar to how like AirPods are a all kind of you can say is a very long lasting wearable device that is very much tied to your phone and the experience uh, is a is an augmentation of your phone right being able to call up Hey Siri on your eyes and and with uh, in your ears without having to pull out your phone and AR can be for sure an extension of that I just I guess it's I've always been bullish about 
or maybe skeptical of the argument that AR will replace phones because um, we, we make this mistake where we think, you know, something new is coming out that is going to replace completely the older thing. Laptops mm-hmm. never fully replace PCs. Perhaps in some situations they did, but, but they never fully, they both have their own paths, right? And their own use cases, similar to phones. Phones never fully killed PCs or laptops. They created their own use cases. Um, TVs kind of fall and the radio fall in that uh, spectrum of replacing in certain things, um, but not in all. So I guess if you want to be, um, thinking realistically about it, you have to think about where, yeah, where does AR, what kind of use cases does AR suddenly create where phones cannot do that thing and Mm -hmm. you will have to use AR. But I think it makes sense if you think of like the Apple ecosystem and how well these wearables work together from your watch to your AirPods to your phone, then glasses also make a lot of sense and they have that infrastructure of developers that have been developing for five, you know for for years now with ar kit um and and understanding what can be done with it that i yeah. think they're 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 going to really set the uh the pace when they do decide to come in yeah yeah i think that's a great point um about whether or not one technology will just totally replace something else uh i i agree with you there um i mean even um even in the gaming world, right? VR is probably not going to replace traditional gaming. Um, but AR uh, does have that. It's that use. It's that. It's the. It's about extending the useful stuff that uh, our smartphones can do out of the little triangle. Um, but to your point about it not completely replacing it, um, there's still the there's still a big input problem. Uh, you know, I don't see us walking around hand gesturing all day, uh, especially for entering text. Um, I don't want to be inputting text with a gaze-driven cursor or uh, with voice command when I'm out and about. I mean, you know, using Siri in public is awkward as it stands. We're trying to use that to send texts. Uh, if you're sending, you know, 10, 20, 30 texts, you know, in a few hours, um, it's just, I don't think it's very viable. And yet the smartphone keyboard is a surprisingly functional uh, input device, even if not as, as quick uh, as, you know, full-size uh, real keyboard. Um, it's much better than this, you know, touch with virtual fingers onto a virtual keyboard and arguably better than uh, voice input uh, when you're trying to use it in public. Um, so I think that uh, if, if nothing else, um, if nothing else, the smartphone could continue to be the input device, we might pull that out and you hold it, you know, you've got your augmented screen here, but you see just a keyboard on your smartphone screen and you're inputting text uh, as needed into, into the augmented window. So there's, uh, and, and this is all far future stuff. This is 10, 20 year stuff um, where the, where AR really, really blows up uh, our smartphone into, into, and integrates it into the, the world around us. Uh, in the new future, I absolutely agree. Um, I don't think AR is in, uh, you know, the next five years uh, going to be replacing smartphones uh, or anything like that. Uh, I think it's that far future where it kind of starts to meld into this glasses plus compute plus uh, compute and input device kind of in our pocket. Um, and that's pretty, you know, when you see, when you put on Magic Leap or when you put on HoloLens and you see that thing that appears to be sitting on your table and you just think, you know, just just kind of imagine it is a it is a pretty awesome, interesting future to see what that could mean once the uh, once the hardware is able to get where it needs to go. The key to getting there is making sure enough people understand that vision and that and that uh, magic, if you will, uh, to continue working on the hardware to know what could be unlocked in the future. And hopefully, that's a role that you know companies like Magic Leap can play uh, by spending the money that they have uh, uh, have raised to make sh- to sell people on that vision. 
Yeah, they need to treat their developers very nicely. Like that's, you know, Oculus has been able to survive on on PC because even though they've been seeding the the content, but like you need you need to treat developers really really well. Uh, they're going to be the only life life force that's going to keep that momentum going, and perhaps uh, not being the most truthful about the display technology or tr- or specs is kind of. Uh, not not great. We have an episode coming out next week about just looking at the display technology that Magic Leap has produced versus what they've been talking about um, and, and even the marketing material and what that's based off of. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that what they've been working on internally uh, was a lot more advanced when, than, than what they you know licensed and produced for the mm-hmm. Magic Leap 1. And it's like... I don't know. That, I was very excited about the display, just like how good the accommodation support was going to be. And that was the one thing I wanted to look and and it really is like similar to what I've seen before, which is yeah. a fixed focal wavelength waveguide. Um, uh, unless you have a question, Peter, uh, we're, we're running short on time. One last burning question that I haven't been able to get any good answers from anyone in the industry as what is Google doing these days? What like is Daydream a thing still? Are they like... <laughs> do they care is tilt brush and google blocks alive like where where are they are they just gonna sit it out for a few more years and uh yeah and see if things catch up or what's going on good question um i don't have super deep insight uh into kind of the the internal structure of of their teams working on this stuff um but my sense from everything that i've really? seen yeah my sense uh, from everything i've seen and written about and all that is that um, I think that they're going uh, kind of a little bit back to the drawing board uh, in terms of R&D. So the, the good thing is they're continuing to hire, um, but a lot of the jobs it looks like they're hiring for are more of this R&D uh, type, uh, type roles as opposed to, um, as opposed to content you know, creators, interface designers. Uh, a lot of those roles, those um, those in software roles, those kind of on top of the tech stack roles, uh, they hired many of uh, you know over the last two years. But now it seems like uh, it is moving back into this R and D thing. So it seems like they might be going back into a bit of hibernation um, and seeing what they can come out with uh, on the other end. Um, they had this vision where you know daydream. Um, Daydream View, their first uh, headset, was this device you could stick a smartphone into, and it was a nice little inexpensive uh, smartphone VR headset. Their vision was that just like the Android phone, which is uh, built on their software but made by many different companies, I, I think that their vision was that other companies would say, oh, we've got a Daydream View headset, and we've got a Daydream View headset. And they and they hoped that these companies would compete and uh, bring different features to customers um, that just hasn't really evolved. And in, in my, from what I've seen, it seems like a big reason for that was uh, Google hasn't been as good about, uh, about attracting and keeping developers and content going. Um, their content is kind of, it's, it's relatively good quality, but it's pretty sparse. And I haven't seen a lot of new stuff, new compelling stuff recently. Um, and that I think is... That's kind of a Google problem, um, more so than a VR problem. You know, they, I don't know that they were ready for the amount of support they kind of, that they were going to have to kind of provide right. to, to get that ecosystem kickstarted. They were, I think, really relying on saying, 
Uh, Daydream is going to be a big platform, and it's on Android. And so our existing uh, our existing Android developers are going to be so excited. They're going to come start building for this because it's this new opportunity, and it's directly tied into the uh, store to the uh, Play Store, which has you know billions of users. Seemed like it was set up to just be this kind of instant explosion, and and uh, hope that their developers who uh, you know, maybe we're having a hard time making it in the saturated Play Store. Right. Uh, would start working on Daydream stuff, and it just seems like they've not really seen uh, that happen in the way that they were expecting to. And I think they were setting up for for a different kind of trajectory that they thought VR was going to go on. And now that that hasn't exactly taken off, um, their stuff's still good, but they I do think are a bit going back uh, to the drawing board in R and D. I don't think that they've given up on it by any means. I think it's still a very active uh, area for them, but I think they're now looking forward to what's coming next. Right, right. It seems like or if you leave it to organic growth for VR on a mobile platform, it's like just not going to live by itself. And, and clearly with how much money Oculus has poured into keeping content coming, like it it shows that that's really what's been the life of it. Uh, keep life of VR uh, for most part is like Oculus pouring millions into, into yeah. companies and content and, and Google, I guess doesn't have an incentive, right? They didn't spend $2 billion on a company and then have to, uh, and they, they already own a platform. They own phones. Um, they don't need a new, I mean, they want yeah. AR and VR to be an extension of it, but no, yeah, they aren't, they don't have that incentive to have to own something. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because yeah. so many companies are, uh, looking at mobile as this future massive potential for VR, which it probably is, but it really feels a lot like um, the core use cases, the really great applications, the really great experiences are happening on the high end stuff. And it probably makes sense because you know there's just simply more breathing room. You know you can make you can have better graphics. People are willing to pay more for the stuff. Um, but to the people who are kind of discounting. Um, the high end just because it doesn't historically have the scale of mobile. I think it's a bit of a mistake for where we are in VR right now. I mean, mm. it just feels like there's so much more rich uh, engagement from people that I talk to who are playing games, who are doing stuff like big screen. Um, and, you know, it might not be, it might not be quite as large, but um, you have to kind of look at the use cases, the use patterns, which seem, so much deeper uh, to me than than what we're seeing on mobile. And so as we were talking about earlier, hopefully Quest starts to bridge that gap. Um, but I think there's lessons to be learned in what kind of things people are doing uh, with the high-end VR stuff. And, um, you know, although that was supported with, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, kind of investment and subsidy, um, it's here, right? Like we're, right. <laughs> it's here. We're recording this podcast in VR. This is, really incredible and it's really useful and it's providing us value uh, and as the hardware gets less expensive if we can just offer up this ability to have a, an nvr meeting to people at the right price that's a rich uh, useful valuable application that somebody will be willing to to purchase and this works best with this hardware that we're that we're using now that has these particular capabilities yeah, it, it really makes sense. And if even though there are people still writing articles that, you know, is VR dying? And it's like either they're misinterpreting the data or just completely ignoring it. Like, yeah, there's clear growth, just not yeah. obviously at the, the rates that you see with other things. But that's how markets start like this. And it's everything. Every indicator of this market shows that it's a quite a healthy growth. And if just because um, it's not the hype time right now means 
uh, it means you probably should be investing in it right now. Yeah, like, this is the yeah. right time to be in it. So <laughs> if I was an investor, if I was an investor, I would be uh, all over VR right now because right. the hype's gone. The use cases have become more clear. It's more clear uh, what kind of company can and will succeed. And the valuations are way more realistic. Um, if you, you know, if you're an investor who's investing uh, in the long run to find the companies that are going to be here uh, 10 years, 20 years down the road, uh, who are massive because they started, you know, they found that use case early and, and survived and continued to iterate on it. Um, that's today you want to get in. You know, there's already been, you know, uh, kind of a, a first wave of, uh, of deaths, if you will, for the for VR companies that rose uh, too big too fast, uh, and now the uh, the second you know wave is kind of ready, and and everything is clearer than before. It's you know people there's it's not so much a, a dream and an idea. It's it's these real use cases. It's this we've built this application. Um, here's how people are using it. And we start to look at that. That's where you start to get your answers uh, about you know whether. Whether or not those applications or companies are, you know, have real legs. Agreed. Uh, ben, how can people find you, uh, contact you, and how can people find out more about Road to VR? Sure, we're at roadtovr.com, which is like a road that you drive on. Uh, drive on. So, roadtovr.com is where we uh, where we publish our news. Um, I'm on Twitter at benz145, and usually ranting and raving about uh, various VR design uh, design issues, uh, which I just throw out there in a vacuum. But sometimes have fun conversations with people. Um, I do. I I I am a real user of VR, which I think is an important part about my perspective. Um, you know, outside of if I wasn't writing about it, I would still be playing these games and and poking mm-hmm. around and seeing what's going on. Um, and so I'm often there in kind of the nitty gritty saying like, this application's interface needs to be better. We're like, this application's interface is really good. Everybody should look at this, look at these lessons. So I'm, uh, actively using, trying to make sure that I continue to be a, a participant, um, and, and helping that to inform my perspective. So for anybody who's interested in those real user nitty gritty conversations, seek me out on Twitter. If you want the high level, what's happening, what's exciting, uh, check us out on road to VR. Yes, big fan of your tweets, and yeah, I think it, it makes sense. Uh, it it's very helpful actually to talk about very design specific things um, because we're just not at the scale yet where um, these things come organically. So yeah, it makes sense, and we really like to concentrate on design uh, as a as a big topic on this podcast. So great stuff there, and you can find the Research VR podcast on Twitter at Research VRcast, um, and uh, if you can consider supporting us on Patreon, that would be incredible. For as little as two dollars, half half a cup of coffee in San Francisco is what you can get. <laughs> <laughs> it was for what one one a month. Uh, unfortunately, Peter, I think they might have kicked him out of the Starbucks. They were closing <laughs> <Sir>? down. <laughs> Sir, we gone. can't be doing this in here. <laughs> Yanked him out of the Matrix. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, thanks Ben again for joining us. This has been really great. Thanks, Oz. I enjoyed it. All right, and thank you all for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>